Hey everybody, and welcome back. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. I hope your quarantine's going great. And it's, uh, it's been a while. Good to, good to be with you. Good to have you with us, or as the case may be. Anyway, we're kicking off um, a series of, uh, of special interviews on the podcast here with uh, EICC founder Joe Boot and one of our Ezra Institute senior fellows, Dr. Danny Strauss. These are called the Reformational Philosophy Interviews. And if, uh, if you've never uh, come across the work of Dr. Strauss, you are, uh, man, sit down and pay attention. Danny is the leading expert in Reformational philosophy living in the world today. It's a huge honor and a privilege to have had him with us. He and Joe sat down and this is a super important conversation. If you have any interest in philosophy or theology at all, you're really going to want to pay attention to this. Danny gets into the origins and the history of philosophy, uh, especially the philosophy that uh, led up to the Reformation. And then they get into what sets Reformational philosophy apart from other schools of thought, about worldview assumptions, ultimate commitments, the unity of all things in Christ, and talking about uh, Augustine and Aquinas and medieval Christianity's contribution to a dominant perspective that, uh, that we still see today of this, uh, this sharp divide between nature and grace. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Ezra Institute's uh, Reformational Special, because uh, this week we have a special guest staying with us at the Ezra Institute Farmstead, our Centre for Reformational Culture in Grimsby, Ontario. And that is uh, Dr. Danny Strauss, uh, all the way from South Africa. And uh, we're going to be doing a series of uh, interviews with Danny while he's here to discuss uh, reformational philosophy, some of the key characters and figures in the movement, the rise of uh, the movements, and uh, try and gain a deeper understanding of the issues that uh, the uh, reformational tradition is seeking to address in philosophy, uh, cultural apologetics, and so forth. So it's my pleasure to have uh, Danny Strauss with me uh, today and uh, for the next few days. And so uh, we thought the best way to start uh, as we uh, try and track with uh, all of this and its significance is to begin with um, uh, Dr. Danny Strauss himself and to ask him a little bit about his own history and how he came initially into contact with the Reformational tradition and where it's taken him over the last 50 years or so in terms of his uh, writing and lecturing and academic career. And then we'll get into some of the details. So Danny, thank you very much for being at the Institute for these few weeks and for um, being willing to share your insights and some of your history with us. Um, why don't you tell us, uh, Danny, just a little bit, first of all, about yourself, your, your family, um, where you're from, and then how it is that, because um, I know your father uh, was a philosophy teacher, I believe, um, or at least a, a, a political, political philosopher. And um, it would be, I think, very interesting for our viewers anyway to, to first understand a little bit about you and how you came into contact with the, this reformational tradition out there in South Africa. 
uh, clear for uh, for our viewers. So you you obviously picked up this interest from your father initially, and you say you've spent fifty years since then looking at the foundation of the scientific disciplines. Can you tell us um, just something a little bit about your career in terms of where you were first teaching, what you did your PhD in, and then where your teaching posts uh, have been uh, since then? Okay, yeah, so I started my bachelor degree at the University of the, of the Free State in Bloemfontein, and uh, I had as majors in the discipline history, philosophy, and mathematics, and I kept the interest up, but my first interest was, as I said, the philosophical foundations of the disciplines. And what happened was that I wrote my master's degree on that theme, philosophy and the special sciences. And I discussed in it a number of systematic distinctions, about 14 of them. And uh, eventually I went to Holland and I continued my studies over there. And I picked up one of the 14, the distinction between concept and idea, or as I later on preferred to mention it or to designate it, the distinction between conceptual knowledge and concept transcending knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've made that my focus, and I went into the history of the distinction and into its uh, relevancy for the present-day situation and what happened in contemporary philosophy in this regard. So it was soon clear to me that meaningful philosophical work should be pers uh, pursued in the following way. First of all, you look at the history of the problem. Secondly, you ask yourself, what are the systematic distinctions coming forth from this problem and the history of that issue? And then finally, you should also look into the implications of that basic distinction or the new systematic distinctions you came up with for the various special sciences. So you have to do all three things to be really involved in meaningful philosophical activities. And so that is normally the case and the way in which I've conducted my research published articles, and so on, and, and books. Mm -hmm. And so uh, having done your bachelor's, your master's, um, you went on to do your doctoral degree. Uh, what did you do your doctorate in? It was in the free, at the Free University in Amsterdam on the distinction between concept and concept idea. Concept and idea. And so where did you then go on to teach over the next uh, then, number of years? Yeah, I was then appointed at the University of the Irish Free State, and I uh, taught there for a number of years until in the early 90s, there was this call upon me to come to establish the Duelet Centre in Ancaster at Redeemer College. That's here in Ontario, yeah. Uh, and to be involved in the translation and publication of the collected works of Herman Duelet. Um, so uh, you've been teaching, you, you taught for a time at Redeemer uh, and then went back to South Africa. That's right. And taught there for a number of years, and now you're uh, semi-retired, would you say, and writing yeah. now? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've left the students behind, but I'm still doing research. And at the moment, I'm a research fellow at Northwest University in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, it means that you still have to be active. You can't sit back and mm -hmm. relax. But uh, alongside that, I've worked constantly on the electric works, and about 17 volumes are now completed. And we hope to publish another seven or eight. And that's the collective works for our viewers of Herman Doiber at 17 odd volumes now. Yeah, yeah. And once they're fully published, 24, 25 volumes, they will be available for less than $250, mm -hmm. all 25. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an amazing service you've done 
the English speaking world in this whole translation editorial process of Doiberg because uh, there is of course the old joke about the uh, Dutchman who's, who's uh, told that um, uh, we haven't seen Doiberg in translation into English yet and the Dutchman says he hasn't been translated into Dutch yet either <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it is a it's it's a it's a fantastic service that you've done accurately getting um, this reformational thought translated. So we thank you for that, Danny. Just a remark. Go ahead. Uh, there is one way of, in which you can describe philosophy uh, or a philosopher. He's a person who has a name for every word. <laughs> <laughs> I think was it Voltaire who said that. Um, uh, when um, when he who listens does not know what he who speaks means, and when he who speaks does not know what he himself means, that's false. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, anyway, well, that's a good spot for us to talk about um, to, to to get into the the, the core of our subject. Um, we're thinking in this series about uh, reformational uh, philosophy. And uh, you've talked about the various disciplines, and so there's this enormous variegated way in which uh, philosophy impacts every aspect of, um, uh, of people's thinking in the various areas of, uh, of thought in the university today. And also, of course, the way in which basic assumptions, worldviews, impact the, the lives of all of us in all of our activities every day. Um, Tell us something about, first of all, before we talk specifically about um, philosophy and some of the rise of philosophy and some of the uh, ways in which um, uh, that has developed, say something to us about the relationship between these concepts that often come together. When, you, when we hear people talking about, and we ourselves as an institute talk a lot about worldview, Mm -hmm. and, and then the defense of the Christian philosophy of life. Say something about the relationship between worldview and philosophy and uh, as, as we understand it today. And then we're going to circle back and talk about the rise of philosophy. Yeah, the important insight is that a worldview is always the motivating power behind any practical endeavor. And the ideal of Christian scholarship and the ideal of establishing special chairs in philosophy like it was done in the Netherlands after they established in 1936 uh, the organization called the Association for Calvinistic Philosophy uh, was always to establish something with a Christian impact, but it was not the outcome of theoretical reflection. It was uh, an issue that bothered them in their daily lives. And that helped them to uh, articulate eventually the idea of Christian scholarship. And then they realized that the gateway towards uh, an integral Christian approach to scholarship should be, first of all, philosophy. Because if you look at the history of every discipline, you find that uh, all the philosophical trends throughout the history of philosophy made an impact on the various disciplines. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of objective and neutral science collapses to the moment you challenge them to speak a bit about the history of the discipline. And that may include physics and mathematics and the so-called exact sciences. Yeah. So what is it that that gives, say something a bit more about what gives shape to or what informs a person's worldview? Because as you're saying, you know, philosophy in, in that sense as a discipline emerges from a particular worldview. What gives shape to or informs or forms a worldview in somebody? Now, a worldview is formed by 
ultimate commitments. And if those ultimate commitments are biblical in nature, it is clear that the biblical starting point of such a reflection will take into account the key themes of the Bible, the fact that God is creator, that he created everything, that he established his law for whatever exists, uh, that radicalness of sin uh, disrupted this creation order, but didn't let it go down the drain, because in Christ everything is still maintained or sustained. And we as Christians have to live out within all walks of life according to the obedience to God's will. And the way in which one can understand God's will is by investigating it and by being informed and motivated by the biblical perspective. So worldview underlies the um, philosophy. So let's come to the, the, the foundations of philosophy itself, and then we can begin to interact with how the reformational tradition sort of addresses it. Um, tell us about the, the, the origins of uh, philosophy. Obviously, if anybody's done any study in philosophy, they will know that uh, the origins of this are in the pre-Socratic, in the West anyway, the pre-Socratic thinkers of the Greek world and so forth. Tell us something about the emergence of uh, philosophy in the West, um, what it means, and how the um, the various principles of origin mm -hmm. shape uh, some of these philosophies. Yeah, that is indeed a remarkable fact that uh, with the rise of philosophy in ancient Greece, the first thing they struggled with was to f account for what was called the principle of origin. And that so-called principle of origin was sought in a certain element in nature. It is. It arose in what was called nature philosophy. And uh, Thales, for example, selected the element water to be the original principle, uh, or fire, Heraclitus, or air, Anaximenes. And Anaximander came with something slightly different, the apairon, the unlimited or infinite. And those original principles were subject to two basic motivating motive powers within Greek philosophy, and eventually Duenet preferred to capture those two poles or the dualism entailed in their, in their uh, operation by speaking about the full motive and the matter motive. And they were original and not reducible to each other. So initially, the only option what, they, what philosophers had was either to give primacy to the matter motive or primacy to the form motive. And the initial phase of Greek philosophy was uh, developed by giving primacy to the matter motive. Mm -hmm. And taking on a, a limited form was actually a transgression that ought to be penalized. And therefore, whatever takes on a specific form is doomed to return to its formless material origin. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it was Dem uh, Democritus or Epidocles and specifically an Anaxagoras, who switched to the primacy of the full motive, and by Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, that dominated the further scene of Greek philosophy. And then, unfortunately, became the unhealthy attempt to synthesize Greek philosophy and Christian Christianity. So let's say, let's just go back to this form matter. Uh, distinction in there for a bit of more clarity for the um, the, the less well read in, in in philosophy. The matter motive, then you're saying, is a sort of stream of life. 
the, the sort of notion of um, uh, a basic principle uh, that sort of is coursing through everything. Um, and everything is essentially matter. That was the that was the fundamental idea. That's right. And then the the form motive. Um, now, if I recall correctly, Doivert sort of links this to the uh, the sort of Olympian uh, the, the tradition of the gods, Greek culture, the cultural religion of form of ideal forms. Yeah. Because um, it comes to a slightly different expression later, doesn't it? In Aristotle, in what he says about form and matter, you can come to that in a minute. But say something about I think it's easy for people to grab to grab the matter motive, the idea of sort of just matter flowing in constant flux. It's harder for them to grasp the form motive. Say something a bit more about that. Yeah, sure. The problem could best be illustrated by uh, Plato, where he struggled in one of his dialogues, Gorgias, with a problem which was presented to Greek philosophers by Heraclitus. And the thesis was basically that everything changes. Mm -hmm. And then Plato realized that if it is the case that everything changes, it would actually be impossible to get to knowledge, to form knowledge of anything. Because the moment you think you've grasped something into knowledge or in a, get a grip of conceptual understanding, it's already it changed. It already changed into something different. And for this reason, he came to a brilliant insight, but he uh, unpacked it in speculative terms. And the insight was that in order to detect change, one needs to uh, accept something constant, something persistent, something enduring. But without endurance or persistence or constancy, it would be impossible to account for knowledge at all. But then he elevated this element of constancy to be settled or to be seated in a suprasensory realm of eternal ideas. Mm -hmm. And they were seen as ontic forms. On the Greek word on means reality, what is. And so the forms of what is. Uh, would, have, would have their seat in that suprasensory realm of... So the ultimate perfect form of a chair is somewhere in the supersensory realm. Yeah. And various manifestations of chairs are here in the real world. Yeah. So the world of the senses is the world of change and becoming, and then the world of the ideal being, that is where the eternal forms have their seat. Yeah. And you are quite right. Uh, the trouble was, of course, that eventually later on in his uh, development, he realized that he cannot account for everything in terms of two principles of origin. You have form as the one principle of origin and matter as the opposing poles. Then uh, there's a difficulty when it comes to an account of the form of the formless. Mm -hmm. Of course, whatever you find in the material world was supposed to be a copy from the ideal forms. Mm -hmm. But what now with the formless? Can there be a form for the formless? Mm -hmm. And it was such a serious problem that they eventually introduced ideal numbers, form numbers. <laughs> right. But uh, this is the same problem that uh, burdened Aristotle in the substance concept, and he had difficulties with his. First substance, which was supposed to be uh, singular, one individual, and the so-called secondary substance that was supposed to be universal, or the universal substantial form of the material. Mm -hmm. So the combination of form and matter uh, gave us a substance in Aristotle's account, but in the medieval period, the anthropology caused it 
fundamental problem once again, because they wanted to have a separate immortal soul. Mm-hmm. And then it needed the matter to become also a substance in opposition to it. But if only matter and form can give you a substance, this material substance was once again, once again something highly problematic. Mm-hmm. Now this dilemma was part of a broader picture. Greek philosophy and medieval philosophy uh, contemplated mainly entities, things, and societal relationships in terms of uh, similar perspectives. But in modern philosophy, there was a switch towards functional relationships between things since the Renaissance. And that opened up a different story, but it uh, also at the same time allowed more for the, what we would eventually call the aspects, the modes of experience of reality to enter the scene. And uh, that helped him to make a distinction between aspects and entities and to understand in which way those distinctions were distorted in the Greek, Greek medieval legacy mm-hmm. and with the modern process which became functionalistic. So um, backtracking slightly, so we've got these two, these two um, motives that form these two poles, they can't be uh, uh, reduced to one another and that becomes mm-hmm. highly problematic. So Aristotle tries to find a way to have the form manifesting itself or, or coming to itself uh, in the in the thing itself, it's manifesting the form. Yeah. Um, and so, into all of this, into this story of Greek philosophy that has this problem of origins and has this two, you know, these, this dualistic point of origin, form and matter. Yeah. You have the Christian gospel being preached, and the, and the gospel is preached into the Greco-Roman world, and with its Hebraic understanding of creation. Of, and its unity. Uh, and, and the unity of creation, not uh, right. not some sort of eternal form and eternal matter, but actually everything being created by the word of God, um, calling all things into existence, governing all things. And then, of course, with the Christian gospel, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who is seen uh, raising the dead and healing the, the, the lepers and the blind and so on, and commanding creation in this way. <laughs> Um, and Paul finds himself in Acts 17, um, you know, at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in discussion with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers and all the assumptions they had about uh, reality. And he quotes their poets and he paints a picture of uh, actually of creation, of fall of redemption, the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus Christ and so forth. And the, uh, we're told that they scoffed and some laughed and some believed and some said, we want to hear you again about this. So it's into that context that the gospel is being preached. Now, you're saying that as the Christian gospel begins to spread well outside of the realm of Judaism mm-hmm. and the Gentiles, the Greeks, mm-hmm. uh, the Romans and the Greeks begin to take on board the Christian gospel. You're saying that philosophy goes through this um, uh, process of synthesizing or, or at least the Christians who want to engage philosophically yeah. uh, end up with a synthesis of Greek philosophy this is critically important as you know Danny because yeah, this affects so many people today uh, still in, in how we think about so many issues so you're saying that there was a, an attempt to synthesize with medieval Christianity mm-hmm. uh, there was a synthesis between the Christian gospel and these uh, ideas within Greek thought. So say something uh, a little bit to us first about um, what Augustine 
did now with Plato mm-hmm. and Neoplatonism, and then what happens a little bit later with uh, Thomism, with Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. and, um, and, and scholasticism. Just boil that down a little bit nice and simply for our viewers so they can understand this, this context now um, before the Reformation uh, addresses it. Yeah, that's right. Indeed, the biblical message that was confronting the ancient Greek world was one in which the unity and goodness of God's creation was emphasized. And that, that unity and goodness cannot be reconciled with the split and the dualism in Greek thought because whatever the case may be, if you give primacy to the matter motive, the form motive is devaluated and the other way around. Mm-hmm. So, uh, unfortunately, Augustine, who was in many respects true to the close to the main line of the biblical revelation, was strongly influenced by Neoplatonism. And uh, one should actually go back to the dialogue with the name Parmenides of Plato. And in that dialogue, he uh, starts out with an assumption that the origin is the one, the hen, and that this hen is without any multiplicity. And then if you move to uh, Augustine, you will find that uh, what in Plotinus happened was that he added to the hen, the noose, the, the reason, and the reason was the unity in a multiplicity, the hen pola. And that became eventually, in later scholasticism and uh, Augustine, the ideas in God's mind, right? the multiplicity ideas, and they were conceived of as if they were the platonic ideal forms and things we experience in the sensory world were simply seen as copies of these ideas, ideas in God's, God's mind. mind. Uh, so that gave us the first leg of what eventually became known as realistic metaphysics of the medieval period, uh, the ideas inherent in God's mind. Aristotle reacted to this by saying that uh, they are not, these ideas are not up there. They are inherent in the things. Mm-hmm. And the example I've always used to illustrate that is where he said that if this house passes away, it is not houseness that it passed away. Mm-hmm. So houseness is the universal form and passing away is part of the world of becoming, mm-hmm. the genesis of the world of the senses. Now, once you have done that, you can now move on to uh, Thomas Aquinas and his difficulty was that he couldn't get himself so far as to say that the matter was also created by God. Mm-hmm. He said God created everything, matter included, but not without form. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate impact was still present and he didn't... So succeed. formless matter, so he just can't bring himself to say that formless matter That's right. is actually created. Yeah, precisely. He said matter is created, but he always gives it the quality. And the same applies to Augustine. He mm-hmm. had the same trouble, and he also said, not without form. Mm-hmm. And the nothing was more than nothing, it was a something, it was a negative, it was a lack of, of being, because it provides you. And so it, it was a difficult situation they called themselves in. And if you transfer that now to the views of society, then it becomes also interesting. Of course, in the case of Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, they elevated the polis, the Greek city-state, to be the highest and most perfect form of human society. Mm-hmm. And that is also the highest moral perfection a human being can attain by being a good citizen of the polis. Yes. And uh, Aristotle took that 
further. And they also advocated the same story. And uh, it was then in uh, the case of Thomas that the synthesis between matter and form became uh, now that between nature and grace. Mm -hmm. And in that opposition, the nature pole became the uh, first step towards the higher level of the supranatural institute of grace, namely the church as an institution. And the relationship between matter and grace was once again one of matter and form. The material part played the role of taking human beings to the highest temple mm -hmm. of uh, perfection. But the eternal bliss is only found through the church. Through the church. Right. And there's no salvation outside the Roman context. So you're saying that in the so, so the four matter motive of the Greek world is synthesized and converted into a nature grace motive in the religious drive in the medieval right. period with Thomas. And are you saying that nature was form and matter, or are you saying that grace was equivalent to the form? Yeah, the, the relationship between nature and grace was that of matter to form. To form, right. Yeah, so the matter became subservient to yeah. the high pole of Christ, yeah. which is the form pole. Right. So it's, that's a strange mix. Yeah. So they bring those things together. And this yeah. is this is perhaps an opportune moment to, to, to comment briefly before we move on to think about the, the Reformation. Uh, to, to comment now, you just talked about, I mean, there will be people watching uh, who, who, of course, have heard of um, uh, Augustine, and uh, Thomas Aquinas and revere uh, these uh, figures. I mean, as you've said, Augustine, in many respects, struggled. I mean, I remember uh, several attempts at a commentary on Genesis uh, as he tried to wrestle himself free from um, Platonic assumptions. And he even called his last volume, I think, his literal commentary on, on Genesis. And you can see in the Confessions as well, how he's trying to wrestle free from that. Um, and we see how the reformers, of course, look to Augustine. So he's he's revered um, uh, in uh, rightly in many respects, and yet there's this element of pagan philosophy that is actually influencing his theology. And then you've just mm -hmm. talked about Thomas Aquinas, the great uh, uh, doctor of the, the Roman Catholic Church in particular, mm -hmm. um, and the way in which he's tasked with bringing by a pope, actually, I think, by bringing Aristotle, by interpreting Aristotle. For the church, not to leave Aristotle with the Mohammedans, uh, with with the Muslim scholars, but to interpret Aristotle for the church. And so here you see, and maybe you can comment a little bit on this, on the way in which um, Aristotle's thoughts through Thomas Aquinas influences the theology of Roman Catholicism. So this would be tremendously interesting to people because it's so often the case that um, Christians today will be suspicious of philosophy. They will read texts like um, Paul uh, telling the church not to be um, led astray by um, uh, philosophy after the, uh, the traditions of men, after the elemental principles of this world. And I've often said to people there, well, if, if philosophy can be done in terms of the elemental principles of the world, it can also be done in terms of uh, the worldview of scripture in terms of the teaching of the foundations that scripture gives to us. But some people are sus Christians are naturally suspicious of philosophy. Um, and yet they often do not realize 
that their own theological perspective is being shaped by certain philosophical assumptions. And you've just given us two beautiful illustrations, Augustine and Aquinas. Mm -hmm. So can you say something to us a little bit more about how the relationship between philosophy and theology works? Because the theologians often think that they are just working completely independently of uh, philosophy. They're just doing their thing. They're doing theology. What do they need with the philosophers? Uh, tell us a little bit about that relationship, because that will be important as we come to the Reformation and, uh, and the Reformation tradition philosophy. Yes, indeed. It's a very important issue to deal with, because what happened was that Thomas Aquinas left the nature sphere relatively alone and autonomous. And it wasn't very much of importance. You could come up with anything almost. But the supernatural domain was, was given to theology, because if you observe or contemplate anything in relation to God, you are by definition involved in theology. And that's a legacy that stretches through to the radical orthodoxy of John Norbank and those guys. Right. So you're saying that there's a particular tradition in theology that says as soon as you think about any area of life in relationship to God, you're then automatically doing theology. You're not doing history or sociology or biology or anything else. Well, if you are a mathematician or a biologist or a sociologist and you do consider what you are looking at in relation to God, then you are doing it as a theologian. Right. <laughs> so, and uh, that is making it pretty difficult to argue, but it's in another, from another perspective, that is fairly simple to uproot this whole idea. Because if you look at uh, the way in which we try to define theology, you can come up then with a definition by specifying subdisciplines within the discipline of theology. The Old and New Testament studies and dogmatological studies and missionary and so on and so forth. Systematic theology and biblical theology and so on. Yeah. yeah, so all those disciplines. And normally it is done by a discipline called the Encyclopedia of Theology. Mm. And uh, I had to teach this as a course for the theological students in the university. And the first time I meet them, I, I asked them, now, what is peculiar about theology? And they started to mention the sub-disciplines. And when we have listed them all, and they all said, satisfied, we have now more or less everyone inside the basket. I said to them, now, if these are the theological disciplines and nothing else is philosophical, in, ah, sorry, if these are the theological disciplines and there's nothing else, that is the theological in nature, what happened to the discipline, the Encyclopedia of Theology? Where does it belong? It doesn't classify itself as a theological subdiscipline. So it says of itself that it is philosophical in nature and not theological. Mm -hmm. So who is telling what? Mm -hmm. The philosopher or the theologian? Mm -hmm. And the next step is, of course, that uh, the theologian will say, or any special scientist, it could be a mathematician or a biologist, that, uh, but if you want to define biology or mathematics or theology, you need to be uh, knowledgeable within the field. I said, yes, that's fine. I don't object to that. I agree. But still, the moment you start to give the definition, you are no longer so speaking theology, you are speaking philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is a legacy that uh, helped the nature pole to go on its own tours. Right. So... That, in a certain sense, in the Thomistic frame, with nature, grace, 
allows nature and what would be encompassed in nature would be anything outside the immediate interests of the eternal bliss of the soul, the moral perfection of the soul. So family, state, education, all of these areas are in the nature pole. Is that what you're saying, yeah. essentially? And they, yeah. can, they can now go their own way. That's right. Mm -hmm. And you also had the fact that he did not accept the radicalness of the fall into sin. So the fall into sin only wounded human reason, but didn't radically degrade it. Right. So there was a trouble with creation. There's a trouble with what has been created and the split between nature and grace introduced into that. There's a trouble in connection with redemption. Because if you are only partially wounded, redemption take on a different angle as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, that completed the circle because what we have now, just to come back to the realistic metaphysics, Plato had these ideas out there. Aristotle pulled them down to become the universal substantial forms of things down here. And then you still have the universal concepts in the human mind, mm -hmm. in Menta Yamana. And those threefold form, or this threefold form of what is universal, got the name of the realistic metaphysical perspective of the medieval period. Mm -hmm. What Plato considered to be up there eventually was transposed into human reasoning as its a priori uh, inborn, innate right. ideas. So humanism secularized the synthesis between Christianity right. and Greek philosophy and got a lot of miles out of it. Right. It's an amazing situation. But the most important thing that happened in this course, in the course of this development, is that with the f termination of the medieval period, nominalism was a new force coming to the fore, and nominalism rejected any form of universality outside the human mind. So it actually rejected Plato's ideas, mm -hmm. it rejected Aristotle's universal forms, and it accepted only the universal concepts in the human mind. Mm -hmm. Truth now is no longer a compatibility between concepts or an agreement between concepts and what is out there and being. So the adequatio intellectus et rei was no longer the criterion of truth. For the nominalist, it simply concerns the compatibility of concepts within the human mind. Right. And uh, I should add something else as well. It is not realized by practically all the writers from the history of philosophy and from Plato and Aristotle, that Plato stumbled upon God's law for being a creature. Mm -hmm. And he created this peculiar status in his transcendent realm of ideas. Mm -hmm. Aristotle stumbled upon the orderliness of, mm -hmm. the lawfulness of creative reality. The way creation responds to that law. That's right, in their subjection to the law for their mm -hmm. existence. Mm -hmm. And if you take away the order for and the orderliness of, what it remains is a chaotic multiplicity of stru structureless reality. Mm -hmm. And that gave... Uh, factuality. Precisely. Yeah. And that gave an opportunity for human reason to take hold of this vacant position. Mm -hmm. Now the human reason will reconstruct and will create a new order mm -hmm. out of its own resources. And you find that in the thought experiment of Hobbes already, mm -hmm. where he said that uh, if you break down reality into a heap of chaos, then you need a clearly defined mathematical concept, which he found in moving body, to reconstruct reality now according to the plan of human reason. Right. 
And this constructive motor went so far that eventually Immanuel Kant. I was say, Kant seems to be the, the, the key ultimate, figure here. Ultimate figure in terms of the rationalistic line flowing from this, because according to Kant, human reason does not create its laws out of nature, but gives rise them to nature in the a priori formal sense. Mm -hmm. So this, the summary at that point would be that Kant elevated human understanding to become the a priori formal origin of nature, mm -hmm. of creation in that, in that those terms. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. If you did, it would mean a lot to us if you took a moment to subscribe, like, and share the podcast on social media and on your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.